Whether or not Marquis de Sade shared early drafts of his most obscene and extreme novel with his wife, his correspondence at the time without a doubt suggests that he had a grand design in mind. In a letter dated December 10th, 1783, he asks his wife for writing materials. She sends material, but his response, well, we'll let that speak for itself. I did not ask you for a cookery book, but a nice manuscript. I'm returning your book to you. You can offer it as a present to your laundry girl. On the book's first page, I give instructions as to how I want the manuscript, so that you can pass on this book if you wish. I prefer to describe the manuscript here. The cover must be extremely thin so that it can be rolled up, as this one already is. It must have precisely 600 pages all numbered in red. The need for a manuscript that could be rolled up and that would include 600 pages, one page perhaps for each of the passions he would catalog in the 120 days of Sodom, suggests that Saad was preparing his work at least two years before he would write the first draft in 1785. Now, some of the notes in this draft undoubtedly refer to his careful planning of the novel's structure, even going as far as warning himself at the end of the manuscript by writing, Do not deviate in the slightest from this plan. Everything within it has been worked out several times and with the greatest precision. Welcome to House of Words, a podcast about writers, myths, and sexual depravity. I'm your host, Jason and Moa Hardin, and on this episode, we explore Marquis de Sade's infamous The 120 Days of Sodom. Although the man born as Donatine Alphonse Francois de Sade would reach colossal levels of notoriety after his death, we need to first take a moment to go through a few of his most controversial public scandals prior to the publication of the 120 Days of Sodom, in particular the scandals that influenced and affected his writing. Though he would write the 120 Days of Sodom while imprisoned in the Bastille, the novel was conceived during his previous prison term at Vincennes. His stay at Vincennes was due to committing sacrilegious acts, which included masturbating over an ivory statue of Christ with a prostitute. <laughs> wow. Just wow. <laughs> now, this was far from his first public scandal. Believe it or not, one that surpasses it, if you can fathom that, is the scandal that followed on Easter Sunday, 1768, 17 years before the writing of the first draft. He took a beggar named Rose Keller to a house in Aquel, where, according to her testimony, he cut her flesh with a knife and poured wax into her wounds. Never being one to deny his sadist ways, he denied using a knife, not the act itself stating that the cuts were instead made from a cat of nine nails. Now, for those of you like myself who are not familiar with this term, it's basically a whip with nine knotted cords. Now, in 1772, he was involved in yet another very public scandal in Marseille, one that involved an orgy with four prostitutes. Now, during this orgy, his valet, Latour, went awry when two of the women fell violently ill after consuming chocolate-coated Spanish fly. Ultimately, 
Saad was accused of homosexual sodomy, a capital offense at the time, mind you, as well as poisoning. Then we have perhaps the most scandalous of the scandals, the one most directly linked to him writing 120 Days of Sodom. This was the so-called Little Girls Affair. And this one unfolded over the winter of 1774-75. Saad and his wife spent that winter at Lacoste with seven freshly recruited young servants, all about 15 years old, as well as a few other servants in their 20s. In a letter written that November, Saad rather ominously tells his friend and lawyer, Gofferty, to stay away. We have decided, he wrote, for a thousand different reasons to see very few people this winter. When night falls, the chateau will be definitively locked shut. The scandal broke in January when the servants' families filed complaints of abduction and seduction against Saad. Making matters worse, in an effort to hide the evidence, the servants were prevented from returning home until the traces of their wounds had healed. One of the servants gave birth in May and threatened to tell everything. Consequently, she was falsely accused of theft by Madame de Sade and sent to prison. Her child was taken from her and eventually died of starvation. Within that same month, a judge declared that Saad had given himself up to all kinds of excesses with young people from both sexes. Marquis then fled to Italy to avoid prosecution, but a year later returned to Lacoste. After his return, on February 13, 1775, he was again arrested and locked up in Vincennes within the hour. Thus began thirteen long years of imprisonment, first in Vincennes until 1784, when he was then transferred to the Bastille, which would arguably change the history of literature. Quote, My manner of thinking, so you say, cannot be approved. Do you suppose I care? A poor fool indeed is he who adopts a manner of thinking for others. End quote. As the final words on the scroll make apparent, he began the 120 days of Sodom on October 22, 1785, and finished it 37 days later. His letters, like his prison cell, were subject to constant inspection, so they generally and unfortunately give away little about his writing activities. His correspondence with his wife, however, does offer a few hints of the novel's beginnings. A letter from Madame de Sade, dated November 28, 1782, reveals, for example, that some of her husband's manuscripts and notebooks had been confiscated, including some apparently compromising material. I don't know what you wrote in the papers that have been taken from you, she writes, but it gives a bad impression of you, it seems to me, from what I've been told. Her warning apparently fell on deaf ears because in May the following year she told him again, What you are writing is doing you a great wrong. Okay, okay, I know. I can hear you already. Terrible French accent. Eh, let's just have some fun with it. Enjoy the rest of the show. While we can't know for certain what Saad was writing at the time, 
a letter railing against the political elite which he sent on April 26, 1783 to his dear friend, Medley de José, seems to anticipate the tone of the opening paragraph of the 120 days. By what rate does this pack of leeches which laps up the people's misfortunes and which by its outrageous monopolies plunges this unfortunate class whose sole crime is to be weak and poor into the cruel necessity of losing either its honor or its life, and in the case of the latter, leaving it no other choice than to lose it through poverty or on the scaffold. What right, I ask you, do these monsters have to demand virtues? It was his extensive planning of the book that allowed him to write it in such a short period of time. He worked between seven and ten in the evening over thirty-seven productive days trapped in a prison. Our little math tells us that it took him just under 120 hours to write the book. Created from dozens of slips of paper glued together and covered in his minute handwriting, the manuscript's form, as well as its content, reflects and represents the horrors of incarceration. As a material object, it remains a unique example of prison art. While he declares the manuscript finished at the end of the scroll, he clearly considered it an incomplete draft rather than a finished work. In a note to himself at the end of part one, he warns, As I have been unable to reread myself, this must surely be teeming with other mistakes. When I make a fair copy, one of my first concerns should be to have a notebook nearby at all times, where I shall need to enter each incident and each portrait as I write them, for without that, I shall become horribly confused because of the multitude of characters. He evidently envisioned a future moment where he'd be able to edit. Now we can only wonder why he never completed the copy he originally intended, since he did have the opportunity to do so. Perhaps he came to the conclusion that the novel was unpublishable and decided to move on to other less extreme projects such as Aileen and Arcour, which he would begin the following year after finishing the 120 days. Or perhaps he planned to return to it once he had regained his freedom, something that would prove impossible. Whatever the case, the lost draft of the 120 Days of Sodom would linger in his imagination as a template for the libertine novels he would publish in the 1790s. One would imagine that a prison sentence would be humbling, particularly one near the end of the 1700s in France, but not for this guy, who apparently did not lose his aristocratic sense of entitlement during his stint. Case in point, 1779, he wrote to his wife, I am made to be served, and served I shall be. Now, in order to uphold his luxurious ways, he would send Madame de Sade on errands around Paris to hunt down items such as il pâté, apricot marmalade, fine bonnets, and anal dildos made to precise <laughs> measurements. He also requested the latest plays, novels, and newspapers. Not only did he live large and read voraciously while locked up, he also wrote a great deal. Plays, short stories, novels, which include the dialogue between a priest and a dying man, the aforementioned Aileen and Valcourt, the misfortunes of virtue, and, of course, the 120 days of Sodom. Though he maintained his creative flair while in prison, his physical health, on the other hand, suffered. For starters, his eyesight degenerated. 
Then he became obese as a result of frequently being denied exercise, partly due to his mistreatment of the prison staff. Eventually, in March 1784, he complained to Monsieur Lenoir, the lieutenant general of police. It is not by such procedures that you will gain anything from my soul. You sour it. You revolt it by accumulating the feelings of hatred and vengeance with which this wretched and tormented soul ceaselessly suffers, and all that you will have gained, be quite sure of this, will be to have made me worse than I would ever have been in my life. His mental health also suffered, which he was apparently quite aware of, judging by this letter to his wife in late 1784. Prison is harmful because the solitude there gives greater force to one's ideas, and the disturbance that results from that force becomes infinitely more prompt and certain. And this mental strain led him to develop what he called a number system that found him searching for clues as to the date of his release and the various letters, gifts, and visits he received. And though he recognized this delirious arithmetic as an onset of madness, he continued to engage in it while preparing the 120 days, as a note from 1784 reveals. When the notary comes, I'll have been here for seven weeks and three days, with seven months and three weeks left, but nothing from 16 to 9. That's 169 and forms 37. Now all the 37s have ended by making 169. That's sublime. The same obsessiveness with numbers and dates as well as similar leaps from reason to unreason are evident in the novel. Then on July 3, 1789, 11 days before the storming of the Bastille, Marquis de Sade was taken from his cell in the prison's Liberty Tower in the middle of the night. Earlier that day, he had been caught shouting to the crowd outside through a makeshift megaphone telling people that the prisoners' throats were being cut. He was then transported to Charenton Asylum outside Paris and forced to leave all his personal effects behind. Among these was a copper cylinder hidden in a crevice in the wall. And by all accounts, it would remain there untouched for the next ten days. On the morning of July 14th, when Madame Dussard went to the Bastille to collect her husband's belongings, she was unable to get close to the prison. The revolution had beaten her to it, and there was no more she could do. Marquis was devastated by the loss of the cylinder, leading him to weep tears of blood, according to himself. Inside the cylinder was the scroll, twelve meters long and eleven centimeters wide, covered on both sides with the tiny but perfectly neat handwriting. This was, of course, the manuscript of the novel entitled The 120 Days of Sodom, or The School of Libertinage. Throughout the book, the reader is reminded of the power of words. For better or worse, the reader is forced to go through an array of emotions, many of them extreme ones. It is difficult to know whether Saad believed in the power of his own fiction to influence or corrupt, rather than simply arouse his readers. His writings contain endless examples of stories that trigger sexual responses in those who read them. And despite this, there are very few instances of anyone ever being changed or converted by what they hear. 
as one of the libertine monks in the novel, Justine, rhetorically asks, can we become anyone other than who we are? For all their openness to new experiences, the libertines of the 120 days are utterly set in their tastes and powerless to change them. They leave the castle of Silling just as they were when they arrived. There is something both dispiriting and reassuring about this immutability for all the immoral pedagogy implied by Saad's school of libertinage. On the one hand, everyone is doomed to be as they are, but on the other, no one can ever be corrupted by what they see or hear. Furthermore, the author does very little to encourage the reader to identify with the four heroes of the 120 days, as there is nothing glamorous or seductive about them. All between 45 and 60 years old, two of the four are more or less impotent. One's health is collapsing, which leaves one, Duc de Blangy, virile and handsome. For the Sadean libertine, eroticism and disgust are not antithetical, but intertwined. The more disgusting the object, the more intense the sensation and the greater the thrill. Beauty and freshness only strike one in a simple way. The narrator comments in the introduction, Ugliness, degradation, deliver a much firmer blow. The shock is far stronger. The excitation must therefore be more intense. The intensity the libertine seeks and indeed requires if he is to overcome his infirmities is gained by violating conventions and customs. Now, sex in the 120 days novel is fundamentally transgressive as sodomy becomes the new norm and genders are bent as the libertines become wives as well as husbands. The female body becomes an object of repulsion and a site of violence, while boys and girls aged between 12 and 15 provide harems for the libertines. Now, the presence of children is without a doubt the most disturbing aspect of the 120 days of Sodom for modern readers. Even by the standards of that time, the youngest of the boys and girls imprisoned by the libertines are still children. In France in the 18th century, the age of puberty was around 14 for boys and 16 for girls. Although girls as young as 12 and boys as young as 14 could technically be married, the average age for first marriages was actually far higher, thus making the scenes in the novel as disturbing and shocking then as they are today. Though extreme in sexuality, the novel goes so far that it borders on satire if not falling completely into it. Now, another strong element of satire also underpins the four grotesque libertines, a bishop, a judge, a nobleman, and a financier, indicating that the novel may also be read as an assault on the institutions they represent. Saad, after all, saw himself as the victim of injustice, persecuted beyond reason for what were, in his view, petty offenses. Although Marquis de Sade would never again see his novel, it was not destroyed in the sacking of the Bastille. Instead, it was taken by a young man named Anu de Saint-Maxime, who would subsequently sell it to a provincial aristocrat, Marquis de Villeneuve-Trance. The treasured scroll would remain with his family in peaceful obscurity for three generations. Towards the end of the 19th century, however, 
whispers began to emerge of a privately held manuscript of a previously unknown work by Marquis de Sade. The scroll was eventually sold by the Villeneuve-Trans family to a German collector at the turn of the 20th century. Soon after, the pioneering sexologist Yvonne Bloch was granted access to the scroll. Then, in 1904, under the pseudonym Eugène de Rennes, he published a private subscription edition of the text in Berlin, proclaiming it to be a great work of sexology. The scroll would remain in Germany until 1929, when Saad's descendants, de Noël's family, dispatched the leading Saad scholar, Maurice Heine, to reacquire the work and bring it home to France. He did just that, and in return was allowed the time and access required to produce a more rigorous edition of the text, which he published in another private subscription edition from 1931 to 1935. Heine would be the last of the novel's editors to see the original scroll. All subsequent editions of the text are based on his transcription. The scroll itself stayed with the Noëls family until, in 1982, they entrusted it to a family friend and publisher, Jean Gru, who offered to have it valued. Gru, however, smuggled the scroll over the border to Switzerland and sold it to a private collector, Gerard Nordmann. Despite decades of legal wrangling, it remained in Switzerland until 2014 when it was bought at a cost of 7 million euros by a private foundation and repatriated to France. This infamous scroll, which started its life in prison, was in 2017 declared a national treasure by the French government in order to ensure that it would never leave the country again. Wow, what a scandalous journey. <laughs> yes, I went there. Now, back to Saad. He was freed from prison in the aftermath of the revolution on April 2nd, 1790. Freedom then struck Saad once again, as his wife refused to see him and divorced him two months later. And with varying success, Saad tried to establish himself as a playwright, partly to create an appropriate public persona and partly to earn some much-needed money. Then, in December 1792, he found himself once again in prison under the law of suspects as an enemy of the revolution. While imprisoned in a former convent at Picpus, he was a direct witness to revolutionary violence and would later claim that from his window he could see the guillotine's victims being buried in the garden. Now he claims to have seen as many as 1,800 people buried in 35 days. His own execution was scheduled for the 27th of July, 1794. However, he escaped the guillotine, partly through the efforts of his companion, Marie Constance Cornet, a former actress. The one to which he dedicated his novel, Justine, their relationship would last until his death. Wrongly suspected by Napoleon of writing an anti-Josephine libel, Saad was arrested yet again at his publishers in early March 1801. There he went, back to the asylum at Sherrington, where he spent the rest of his life. Living up to his libertine ways all the way to the end, during the last two years of his life, he allegedly had a sexual relationship with a young female laundress or seamstress working at the asylum. He died on December 2nd, 1814, at the age of 74. Wow, what a story. And let's end it with a quote from the Libertine. The imagination is the spirit of delight. All depends upon it. 
It is the mainspring of everything. No, is it not by means of imagination one knows joy? Is it not of the imagination that the sharpest pleasures arise? End quote. Thank you for listening. I hope you've enjoyed this episode and will spread the word about the podcast. Once again, I have been your host, Jason Nemoa Hardin. We here at House of Words ask that you please consider helping to make this show easier to produce and more frequent by contributing on our Patreon page at patreon.com slash houseofwords or paypal.me slash houseofwordspodcast. Alternatively, you can subscribe and encourage others to subscribe to our YouTube page, House of Words Podcast. Every little bit helps more than you might think. Until next time, keep turning those pages. House of Words is written and produced by Crystal M. Sanchez. Narrated and written by me, Jason Moore Harden, and music by Creature Nine and Wood. All rights and ownership belong to Christo M. Sanchez and Jason Moore Harden. 